DW Africa Link. Welcome to DW's Africa Link program for the very latest from Africa and beyond. I'm Isaac Mugabe. And I am Okeri Ngushinado. We're coming to you live from our studio here in Bonn, Germany, and also live on our Facebook page, DW Africa. Share your thoughts on the stories that we're covering today. And coming up on the program, Somalia rejects an appeal from Ethiopia to enter into negotiations with a view to granting it access to the Red Sea port. So what's next for Ethiopia? There is, of course, a need for Ethiopia to have access to seaports, but that access can only be achieved through bilateral and multilateral uh, relations with the neighboring countries. A health startup in Rwanda that uses artificial intelligence takes on diabetes, strokes and other non-communicable diseases. Artificial intelligence in health sector can help to reduce the consultations, can give help the doctors to give proper diagnosis, and therefore can improve the quality of care. Stay tuned for the details of those stories and much more after the world news in brief. DW News. Hello, I'm Keith Walker. U.S. President Joe Biden says the United States will work with Israel to prevent civilian deaths in Gaza. Biden is paying a solidarity visit to Israel in the aftermath of the Hamas terror attacks. His trip is aimed at keeping the conflict from spiraling into a wider regional conflict. Biden also reiterated U.S. commitment to Israel after meeting with Prime Minister Netanyahu and his war cabinet. I want you to know you're not alone. You are not alone. As I emphasized earlier, we will continue to have Israel's back as you work to defend your people. We'll continue to work with you and partners across the region to prevent more tragedy to innocent civilians. Israel's Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu says Israel is trying to ensure that innocent people are not caught up in the conflict. As we proceed in this war, Israel will do everything it can to keep civilians out of harm's way. We have asked them and will continue to ask them to move to safer areas. We'll continue to work with you, Mr. President, to assure that the minimal requirements are met and we'll continue to work together to get our hostages out. Mr. President, the road to victory will be long and hard, but united in purpose and with a deep sense of justice and the unbreakable spirit of our soldiers and our people Israel will prevail. The two leaders were speaking after a nighttime blast at a Gaza hospital. Gaza's Hamas-run health ministry now says 471 people were killed in the explosion, which it called an Israeli massacre. Israel says evidence showed a rocket misfired by Palestinian militants is responsible. Both claims have not been independently confirmed. Meanwhile, the United States has vetoed a UN resolution that would have called for pauses in the conflict to allow humanitarian aid to Palestinians in Gaza. And German Chancellor Olaf Scholz told reporters during his visit to Cairo in Egypt that the German and Egyptian governments were working together to get humanitarian access to the Gaza Strip as quickly as possible. Scholz travelled to Cairo following a visit to Tel Aviv, where he expressed German solidarity with Israel. AfricaLink News comes to you from Germany's international broadcaster, DW. 
Two so-called Molotov cocktails were thrown at a synagogue in central Berlin early on Wednesday morning. German police say two as-yet-unidentified people threw the burning bottles filled with flammable liquid at the synagogue. The incident is currently being investigated. German Chancellor Olaf Scholz has vowed to fight anti-Semitism on German soil. And finally, Uganda's president has condemned a cowardly attack in a wildlife park that killed a honeymooning couple. Ueri Museveni has vowed the assailants will pay with their lives. A Briton and a South African were killed, along with their Ugandan tour guide in Tuesday's attack. It's been blamed on an armed militia based in neighbouring Democratic Republic of Congo. Officials said the trio had been on safari in Queen Elizabeth National Park when they were attacked. And that's the latest AfricaLink News. I'm Keith Walker. Thank you, Keith Walker, for the latest on the news. You're listening to Africa Links, DW, DW's Africa Link. I am Okeri Ngushinado. And my name is Isaac Mugabe. Welcome to our listeners on our Facebook page, DW Africa. Remember to comment on the stories that we are going to cover here on the show. Okeri and I will happily read them out live on air. Now on to our top story. Somalia rejected an appeal for Ethiopia to enter into negotiations with a view to granting it access to a Red Sea port. Ethiopian Prime Minister Abiy Ahmed last week warned that his country's lack of access to a harbour is a potential source of future conflict and called for efforts to address the issue in order to safeguard regional stability. Now, to take you back a little bit to history, Ethiopia lost its direct access to the sea in 1993 when Eritrea gained independence after a three-decade war. Without direct access to the sea, Ethiopia faces challenges in terms of trade and transportation. For more on this issue, I spoke to political analyst Abdurrahman Said and asked him what the rejection would mean for the relationship between both countries. Uh, unfortunately, it would mean the relationship is not going to be very productive. Um, there is, of course, a need for Ethiopia to have access to seaports, but that access can only be achieved through bilateral and multilateral uh, relations with the neighboring countries. If not, then the situation of a conflict and threats of conflict does not help access to the Red Sea or to the Indian Ocean. And I can tell you that Ethiopia can actually access up to six ports from Mombasa in Kenya to Djibouti and Berbera in Somalia to uh, and uh, Magdisho uh, in Somalia plus Djibouti plus the Eritrean ports of Assab and uh, Masawa. All these ports would be of great benefit to Ethiopia. However, um, the relationship should be based on mutual interest plus on respect of um, sovereignty of these countries over their uh, territorial uh, land and waters. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's also what I wanted to ask. I mean, Ethiopia lost its direct access to the um, Red Sea port in 1993 when Eritrea gained independence. And that's that's also what I want to know. Would the Prime Minister Abiy Ahmed switch gears and maybe also approach its other neighbouring since Somalia has rejected this bid? 
Well, uh, there was a good chance for uh, the Prime Minister of Ethiopia, Abiy Ahmed, um, to establish a very productive relationship with Eritrea because they signed it. The two countries signed a peace agreement in 2018, and that peace agreement uh, was hoped to produce uh, a very solid relationship that would have included Ethiopian access to the Red Sea and Ethiopian also mutual uh, business uh, of mutual benefit uh, between Ethiopia and Eritrea uh, after the peace agreement. Um, that seems to have now been uh, harmed by the statement that has been coming out from um, Ethiopia, because what the Ethiopian prime minister has been doing um, in the statements, he is talking about ownership, not access, ownership of seaports. Now, that is not a good way of approaching this issue. Access is, uh, is fine because it, it does benefit both sides, the one accessing and the one to be accessed. However, when you talk about ownership, it means taking away sovereign territory from one country or the other and then incorporating it into Ethiopia. So this is really what um, is of great concern, that why the Ethiopian prime minister chose this time to make such a statement when there aren't even any issues of access to the ports. What would the prime minister now have to do when approaching Ethiopia's neighbours and asking if they can gain access to the Red Sea port? What would his narrative have to be now? Yeah, I think the approach for any government in Ethiopia should be, first, it has to be based on mutual respect of sovereignty uh, over territorial lands and, and waters. That's very important. Second, there has to be mutual interest as well. The countries that would give access um, to Ethiopia should also have some benefit out of it. And Ethiopia can always uh, give a lot of benefits to these countries, from water to electricity to um, uh, uh, grains and food supplies and so on. Speaking to political analyst Abdurrahman Said on the issue in Ethiopia. I mean, Ethiopia is a landlocked country right now and has no access to the Red Sea port. Well, well, Ethiopia also has to do uh, negotiations with Somalia and Eritrea. Well, to take you back a little bit before we go ahead. In 1999, Eritrean President Isaias Aforki told the press quote-unquote, that Asab was a free port, Masa was a free port for Ethiopia. This was declared as early as 1991. And he went on to say, we believe these ports should be free, not only for Ethiopia, but for everybody else who wants to use them. That's our policy. But tell us what you think about this particular story. Uh, is your country landlocked and you can't have access to sea and you need to negotiate with other countries? Tell us how your governments are dealing with the situation and we shall come back to your comments a little later, whenever time allows us. Now, in Rwanda, an online startup, Lifestyle Health, is helping people there to adopt dietary habits, physical activities and mental health monitoring. And they are using artificial intelligence and also data analytics. And the startup provides personalized guidance and motivation depending on an individual's workout routine. Well, I think I think I really need, need this. And the fact that I'm coming from Rwanda or Kerry, I should <laughs> upload it as fast as I can or I could in case I travel back there. Lifestyle Health is making a real difference in people's lives, giving information on non-communicable Diseases. Alex Ngarambe reports from Kigali. For peace, Iragu Handori, the brain behind Lifestyle Health Startup operating in Kigali Central Business District, this new innovation will help at diagnostic stage, hence saving time and money for patients. 
this new innovation is going to help uh, primarily at the point of diagnostics. So in the traditional healthcare system, it requires someone to go to a health facility or meet with a healthcare provider physically for them to run blood pressure tests, blood sugar, ETC, and then get diagnosed. And because of how long this process takes, the out-of-pocket expenditure, people tend to visit health facilities when, when it's too late or when they're too sick. Through innovation and technology, it allows us to get to these people before they're sick. According to the World Health Organization standards, one doctor should serve a thousand patients, but in Rwanda it is eight times more. Ndori says that this affects the quality in the health sector. She believes her startup that involves artificial intelligence will address the problem. Leveraging on technology, available technology and advancements in AI, it allows us to cut on this in a way that everyone doesn't need to meet a healthcare provider. If uh, your issues, if simple diagnostics can be done remotely. So I think uh, it's high time that the health system in Rwanda embraces the, these technologies so as to be able to reach the recommended ratio by the World Health Organization. Dr. Evaristen Haganda from Rwanda Biomedical Center and the Non-Communicable Disease Department says that artificial intelligence is an emerging trend in the health sector and they are monitoring lifestyle closely since it is still in its infancy. As pertains the lifestyle project, of course this is a project that has, uh, they have started to work with us in Rwanda, but I think they are still in the process of uh, uh, authorization. Last time we met, they were trying to acquire the, the, the data protection authorization on our side, I said it was okay, it's a, it's a, a digital tool. That, so uh, when we start working with them closely, uh, when you shall see the results, then you shall get to know whether the tool can help or not can help. Dr. Naganda agrees that artificial intelligence, especially in the health sector, can support doctors to provide quality diagnosis and improve the health sector. Artificial intelligence in the health sector can help to reduce the consultations, can give, help the doctors to give proper diagnosis, and therefore can increase the quality of care. There are hopes that the artificial intelligence could transform the health sector and curb the shortages of doctors in Rwanda. Alex Karambi brings us that report from Kigali. Um, and we also asked on our Facebook page, DW Africa, if such innovations are also available in your country. Mumbanga Mwemwe says we need this technology in Zambia too urgently to save lives. And uh, Francis Conti says it's very impressive from the outside. Armstrong Kema says good work. Keep it up. Many thanks for those comments. It's a quarter past the hour in case you're just joining us. This is Africa Link, broadcast every Monday to Friday. Once again, my name is Isaac Mugabe. And I am Okeri Ngushinado. We welcome those following on our Facebook page and we also appreciate your feedback on the stories we're covering. Now, in the next 15 minutes, we'll be hearing whether working women who rely on their partners to cover bills are slowing down the feminist movement. If the relationship is... um 
mutual and the man finds that is okay that he's the man with quotes in the relationship paying the bills even though the woman works then there's no issue and later on as well in showbiz we'll be looking at the kibera fashion show i'm excited for that piece Okay, but first, malaria remains one of Africa's deadliest diseases, killing nearly half a million children each year under the age of five, with Africa accounting for approximately 95% of global malaria cases. Mm -hmm. Now, 12 countries across different regions in Africa are set to receive 18 million doses of the first ever malaria vaccine over the next two years. The rollout is a critical step forward in the fight against one of the leading causes of death on the continent at the moment. Well, this story has so many figures, uh, but it's important that we mention the malaria kills nearly half a million children each year under the age of five, with Africa accounting for approximately 95%. That's intentional so that you keep up with this very, very strong interview coming on. Well, since 2019, Ghana, Kenya and Malawi have been delivering the malaria vaccine through what's called the Malaria Vaccine Implementation Program, which was coordinated by the World Health Organization, among other organizations, including also Gavi that funded it, the Vaccine Alliance, the Global Fund to Fight AIDS, Tuberculosis and Malaria. And to break it down for us, DW's Sushmita Ramakrishnan spoke to Marie-Ange Sarakayao, that is Gavi's Chief Resource Mobilization and Growth Officer, about the malaria vaccine. Sit back and take a listen. I think, you know, obviously, uh, I should say that it's really one of the, the deadliest diseases, especially for some of the low-income countries that Gavi uh, uh, supports, uh, particularly in Africa. I think that actually in terms of children is probably uh, the deadliest uh, disease right now. And so we have been working on the malaria vaccine for some time. Actually, in 2019, we pulled forces together, Gavi, the Vaccine Alliance, because Gavi is an alliance with WHO, UNICEF, and the key players in global health, together with the Global Fund uh, for, you know, uh, tuberculosis, malaria, and HIV, and UNITED, we decided to uh, pull together a project to help, uh, you know, the last stage, let's say, of a malaria vaccine. And could you elaborate a little more on the vaccine itself? Like, how does the vaccine work? Okay, how does the vaccine work? I mean, the vaccine, uh, WHO has deemed that the vaccine is uh, in, is really efficacious. It will have, though, to be worked on with the other um, uh, intervention for malaria. It's very important because as a whole ecosystem, as always, you know, when you bring a vaccine, you have to think about how it integrates into the community, how you, you, you introduce it, you deliver it to various mm -hmm. communities. And we are lucky that working with the Global Fund and other partners, there's a whole ecosystem that exists for, 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 for malaria. Because, you know, the way we work is that we know, for example, for Nigeria, we need 8 million of vaccines. So we have to plan in advance, you know, make sure the procurement is there on time. And also then, but that the system, that there's enough health workers, that maybe they need to be trained. Because often these vaccines have different particularities and you need to have mm -hmm. the training. Working with the community, we work a lot with community uh, 
health workers because it's also deepening the coverage in country. Which are these countries? Which are the target countries that you're talking about? I mean, look, uh, the whole of Africa wants malaria vaccines and, and even some countries in Asia. And actually, one of the recommendations of, uh, of WHO for this latest vaccine is actually expanded the... Because so typically WHO gives recommendations on how you administer the vaccine. Is it one dose, two dose, three dose, four dose? So pretty much everyone in Africa wants this vaccine. Everyone in sub-Saharan Africa wants these vaccines, you know. I can tell you from countries like Ghana, Côte d'Ivoire, my own country, Nigeria. Uh, uh, just to, to give you, and maybe I didn't say it at the beginning, but 95% of the burden of malaria is in Africa. That was Marie-Ange Saraka Yao, Gavi's Chief Resource Mobilization and Growth Officer, talking about the malaria vaccine that is going to be rolled out in 28 countries. Now, let's move ahead with the topic that is often controversial. And yes, because it is feminism. Well, not so controversial, but feminists, I know they're outspoken. I stand to be corrected or carry. Mm-hmm. And they're passionate about issues that affect women in general, but also men. They're feminists who advocate for men's rights. Yes, basically. And I mean, for this conversation, we're going to Malawi, where Miriam Kaliza is on standby with her panel to discuss this question on whether a working woman who rely on their partners to cover their bills are they basically slowing down the feminism drive? Let's listen to what the panel has to say. Hello, 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 77 percenters. Welcome to this edition of the 77 percent show. Today we are discussing serious issues. Money, mula, dalama, whatever you call it in your native language. On the panel, I have Linda Moyo, a communications specialist. Mbanandi Saka, a young businesswoman who is also working, as well as Kate Kujaliwa, a personal development and financial coach. Do stay there. And straight into it, Kate, what is your comment as regards to today's topic? Thank you very much for your question. To directly um, tackle your question to say, uh, does a working woman relying on her husband and her mind the concept of feminism? I think feminism is about advocating gender equality and empowering women so that they make choices that align with their own values and goals in their own right as a human being. So whether or not a working woman uh, relies on her partner to pay bills or not is a personal choice. So the key concept here is choice, that freedom to make a choice, even for women. So it's important to respect that individual decision and not to judge someone's feminist credentials based on the financial arrangements. Um, I also think that uh, feminism supports women's rights to choose what works best for them in their lives and in the relationships. So if the relationship is um, mutual and the man finds that, is okay that he is the man with quotes in the relationship paying the bills even though the woman works then there is no uh, there's no issue because the the, the 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 critical element we're looking for here is decision that is interesting really um banandi anything in malawi where the working women's reliance on a partner to pay for bills undermines the goals of feminism is a complex issue. On another part, it can be viewed as a personal choice when it stems from mutual agreement and respect within the relationship. However, if this reliance is a result of traditional gender roles and society pressures, 
then automatically it may undermine the principles of feminism. So to answer your question, um, it's really essential to distinguish between women's choices and the society structures influencing those particular choices. Well, short and nice. Let's hear from Linda as well. This is a partnership uh, where both parties, I suppose, are to compromise in, uh, on issues of finance so that the household has to go on and move. But if you ask me if uh, that feeds now the feminism principles, entirely I would say yes, because um, it makes you now uh, on the vulnerable end that uh, you take everything on board because somebody's financing everything. And you literally do not have uh, a point where you can make your own decision when it comes to finances because entirely you're relying on someone else. Well, well done, Miriam Kaliza and the panel of ladies there you had discussing that question of feminism and paying the bills. And for more on this show, you can go to our Facebook page. It's part of the 77% program, a program designed for the youth. Okay, do we have some comments? Yes, we, we do have comments on this on this topic. Um, Tanting George says, most working women still depend on their husbands for financial support. Telling the husband my money is my money and your money which is the husband's money is our money that we get to share <laughs> <laughs> okay okay thanks for that yeah. and uh, it's time for showbiz uh, we take you to kenya's biggest slam uh, which is kibera that has hosted its second ever ever fashion week amazing mm -hmm. now the event aims to bring kibera's street style to the world kai Neber brings us more details in this report this is Kibera style. Fashionistas from Kenya's largest slum are out in force to celebrate local talent. This is the second ever Kibera Fashion Week, a groundbreaking event that puts clothes by designers from this Nairobi neighborhood on the runway. Backstage, models are getting ready, applying makeup before they hit the catwalk. The Fashion Week's founder is Avido, or his real name is David Ochieng, a 27-year-old designer. He wants to generate a buzz around Kibera's fashion. Here in our community, we have like variety of designers. The only thing that is normally out there that is a big problem for us is like getting the opportunities for these designers out there. And that is one of the main reasons also why we are having Kibera Fashion Week, so that we can show the designers that are part of the Kibera Fashion Week to the world and introduce them out there. This extraordinary showcase includes 11 projects plucked from a pool of 376 talented candidates. These projects span a diverse spectrum of styles crafted from an array of materials including cotton, jute, wool, pearls and even metal. But will people wear them? Avido points to Kenya's culture of buying second-hand clothes imported from overseas as a major barrier to developing the local fashion business. For us, we would like to create our own collections and the clothes that we want to make. We want to be like sustainable. We want to. We need to grow our own type of crops. After growing our crops, cottons, we are able like to produce whichever type of clothes that we need or whichever type of clothes that are needed into the market. But we are not able to jump into it fully if our biggest competitor is the second-hand market. Avido has featured in the style bible Vogue, but he says he is less interested in the fashion capitals of Milan, Paris, and New York and instead takes inspiration from his home. Kibera Fashion Week is also a chance to show a more diverse range of beauty. So model Julie Nasuju is on the runway. She has the skin condition vitiligo and thinks more people who look like her should be modeling clothes. People living with vitiligo, 
Tango haven't been seen in the runways except for Winnie Harlow, who's doing it big outside there. So here in Kenya, it, this is like an introduction to the fashion industry that we should be included in the runways. One standout designer is Millicent Oluwoch. She has named her collection Random Thoughts to convey her commitment to simplicity and uniqueness. It's been a long journey to get her ideas out of the sketchbook and onto the catwalk. The amount of work I've put into making this collection is a lot. It took a lot to do this. There was a time I almost gave up, but thank God I made it through. So the world seeing what I did is such an amazing thing. The Fashion Week in Nairobi's largest informal settlement is redefining style and creativity, but also changing the narrative about the neighborhood. Well, well, that was a very, very interesting, interesting story about bring back life to Kibera. That is in the heart of Nairobi. And maybe for those who may not know Kibera or Nairobi, it is uh, arguably Africa's largest slum and also the largest slum in Nairobi with a population of maybe between 500,000 and 1 million people who are living there, and it is growing day by day. But a lot of life has come back to mm-hmm. Kibera. It's not that slum where you... We did stories about flying toilets of Kibera, mm-hmm. you know, because of there was no p- proper sanitation. But over time, there have been non-government organizations going there and bring back life, you know, extending water to these communities. And now... Fashion show. I I love what the youth are doing, Uh, these young fashion designers. I love seeing the images and, I mean, the clothing that they're doing and also using kind of like sustainable fashion and what other people would see and also changing the image of Kibera from kind of what it was known to like this beauty, showing the beauty in in, I guess, Nairobi slum. Well, giving it a new first lift. Yes. yeah. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, it's quite interesting. And... Well, we can't go without breaking this story. Uganda is looking for the gunmen that killed two tourists and their driver last evening. That's according to the president, Yorim Seven. It's the story that we touched on yesterday in our show. And the story we are pursuing in case of any developments, we shall bring them to you right here on Africa Link. And on that very note, we come to the end of the show. On behalf of our technician and the rest of the Africa Link team, I'm Isaac Mugabe. And I'm Okiri Ngushinado. Until tomorrow. Made for mine.